Hello and welcome to the first episode of Japan Memo in 2022, the IIWS Japan Tour Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy at IIWS. And I'm Robert Ward, the IIWS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Green from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dr. Green is Senior Vice President for Asia, Japan Chair, and Henry A. Kissinger Chair at CSIS and Director of Asian Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where I also graduated as a student in 2017. It is my pleasure today to welcome my mentor and my former boss at CSIS. SIS from across the pond. Dr. Green has extensive experience in the US government, having served on the National Security Council from 2001 through 2005, first as Director for Asian Affairs with responsibility for Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, and then as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Asia with responsibility for East Asia and South Asia. Earlier in his career, he spent some time in Japan through the JET program and also worked in Japan as a staff of the member of National Diet and as a local reporter for Iwate Nippo. Dr. Green has authored numerous books and articles on East Asia security, including By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy, and American Power in the Asia Pacific since 1783, and The Line of Advantage, Japan's Grand Strategy, and the Era of Abe Shinzo, which is coming out this March. He also holds a black belt in Iaido. And has won international prize on the Great Highland Bagpipe. Well, thank you all very much for having me. Mike, your JET experience has piqued my interest. It's always good to, to meet a fellow JET alumni. May I, may I ask when and where you were in Japan? I was on the program and I went after college, so from 1983 to 1985. I was in Shizuoka Prefecture in a very small town on the coast that was famous for eels and surfing. And being a native of Maryland, I, I knew little about either, but became experts on both. When I was there, it was called the Mombusho A. Kaiwa Fellowship. It was, it was a year or two before it became JET. I think there were probably no more than 100 Americans and a handful of British and Canadians and Australians all over the country. So it was great fun. And I thought I would do it for a year before joining the Foreign Service. I passed the diplomatic exam in college. Maybe it's the same for you, Robert. I got hooked. <laughs> I peeled back one layer of the onion, I couldn't stop peeling. Ended up getting a master's and a PhD, and, 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 is, and the rest is history, as they say. So, you were there just as the bubble was getting underway in Japan? Oh, it was wonderful, the bubble for me. I left to go back to SAIS, where I got my master's in Washington, in August 1985. And so, my Mitsui bank account, which was all in yen, almost doubled in value because of the Plaza Accords, which, of course, Robert will, will know of, when the US in particular pressed Japan and Germany to. Increase the value of their currency. So I took that money and I traveled across China and Russia and in Europe for、uh, the rest of the summer before going to grad school and paid for a good part of my first year of grad school thanks to the bubble. So the Plaza Accord was very popular with a 20 something Mike Green living in Japan at the time. Well, I went just after, a little bit after you in 1989, but I still got the tail end of the, of the bubble, which, as you say, was, it was a lot of fun. It, it, it provided you didn't have lots of debt, of course,、uh, in the 90s. Uh, and I was, in, I was in Kumamoto for the time, which was also absolutely wonderful. Did you ever eat Kumamoto beer sushi? <laughs> We had a few interesting dishes in Kumamoto, yes, which took a little bit of acclimatizing to, but I managed to. It was a wonderful experience. Jet, as, as you will know, Mike, a great example of Japan's long term planning and soft power to project Japan's influence beyond its borders. 
There are over 120, I think, members of the U.S. Diplomatic Corps Foreign Service who are JET alums. My guess is no more than two or three are actually working on the Japan desk. So that means every time a Japanese diplomat goes to the State Department to talk about Africa or oceans, there's a good chance that someone across the table speaks Japanese and lives somewhere in rural Japan. So it's been part of the transformation of U.S.-Japan relations. When I was in grad school in the mid to late 80s, polls showed Americans were more afraid of Japan than Soviet Union. And today, Japan's the most trusted country in Asia for Americans, and I imagine for Brits and Australians and, and in Southeast Asia, of course. So JET was part of that. Not the only thing, but a big factor. Well, fast forwarding from the 1980s to the to the present day, a year or so has passed since the inauguration of President Biden. And there's been some pretty significant events, not only in the Indo-Pacific, which is obviously where the US-Japan relationship is mainly focused, but also globally. What developments in the past year do you think have had the greatest impact on US and Japanese strategic thinking? Well, the Biden administration came in with a bit of a question mark. You know, Japanese journalists asked whether this would be a pro-Japan administration. But many of the veterans of the Obama administration didn't align with Japan as well as Tokyo would have liked. The early part of the second term for Obama, Xi Jinping offered the so-called new model of great power relations or, you know, proposed to, to Obama that the friction between U.S. and China be controlled by a bipolar condominium, a sort of U.S.-China confab where the issues that affect Japan or India or Korea or Europe, for that matter, would be settled by the two big powers. And there were some in the Obama administration who quite publicly, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, Susan Rice, who was National Security Advisor, quite publicly embraced that idea. Others fought it. Kirk Campbell, the Defense Department. I would argue, actually, personnel matters a lot. And probably the most significant thing Biden did was put the hawks in charge of Asia policy. Uh, Susan Rice got a plum job doing domestic affairs. John Kerry is doing climate change. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the Indo-Pacific Coordinator, Kurt Campbell, the top people at Defense and State, they're all from the, if you will, hawkish, I would say, realist side of the Obama administration. So that personnel mix, which reflects where the Congress and the public in the U.S. is today compared to 2014 or 15. But that was probably most significant. Those people then put in place and, and helped President Biden do things like the Quad Summit of U.S., Japan, Australia, India, uh, AUKUS, U.S., U.K., Australia. Uh, the first visitor was Prime Minister Suga of Japan to the White House. But all those flowed from who Biden chose to run his Asia policy. So that personnel choice was most important. And frankly, what the Japanese press and Gaimu Show Foreign Ministry was most interested in. Given that the, the Hawks are being put in charge of, of Asia policy, how, how aligned do you think that the US and Japan are on their goals and strategies to deal with the strategic and geoeconomic challenges from China? Probably more aligned than ever in our entire history, which sounds a little melodramatic, but I think it's probably true. Certainly when you look at opinion polls in both countries, when you look at the bipartisanship between the alliance in the US Congress and in the Japanese diet, no candidate in Japan's election last year ran against the alliance, none except sort of the Communist Party. But the Communist Party ran harder against China than against the U.S. And in the U.S. Congress, the bipartisanship behind all our alliances in Asia, really, Australia and, and even in Korea as well, is very, very robust. So in that sense, very well aligned. The Biden administration picked up the Trump administration's borrowing of Abe's free and open Indo-Pacific as a strategic framework for how to think about Asia, which of course, strongly implies a framework that is aligned with democratic maritime allies and not a G2 or a great power condominium with China. There is one area where Japan may be even less aligned with the U.S. than it was during the Trump administration, and that's on trade policy. Polls by Lowy, by the, the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore, 
And other polls show that while the region and Japan in particular are pleased with and see growing influence for the U.S. diplomatically, they see declining influence for the U.S. in economic statecraft. They survived Trump. Now they're going frustrated with Biden because of the lack of an economic strategy. Obviously, Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Biden has said he's not going to rejoin. The administration's promising something new, but nobody knows what it is yet. So that's probably an area where we're actually maybe diverging a little bit in contrast to every other aspect of diplomacy and defense. Biden's got the Indo-Pacific economic framework. From what you say, you're a bit skeptical about whether that's actually going to deliver what the Japanese may may desire. The Indo-Pacific economic framework right now is a little bit like opening up a cookbook and all you have is the ingredients. So it says peppers, two eggs, flour, sugar, salt, avocado, and cherries. When you hear them talk about it, they say words, nouns, you know, supply chains, digital trade. They say a lot of nouns. There's no verbs. There's no instructions. What is it? Is the administration going to create a digital trade agreement? Are they going to have regulatory talks? There's no action to go with the menu that everyone knows would be the menu of issues in economics in Asia with respect to high tech. And the reason is because the people pushing this, Secretary of Commerce of Commerce Raimundo, Kurt Campbell, the State Department, they are being blocked by protectionists in the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, USTR. The USTR, you know, the hawks who want to compete with China and no trade as part of that competition are running policy at state, defense, NSC, but USTR, the Trade Representative's Office, which has the statutory authority, because under the U.S. Constitution, trade agreements are approved by Congress, not the administration. That is given, in a sense, through legislation to USTR, and they are all the most protectionist parts of the administration and are trying to block any significant negotiation. To some extent, they're backed by domestic, progressive, political advisors around Biden who don't want to support business. That's the problem. If the people who are focused on strategic competition were in charge, you'd have a lot of verbs, a lot of action to go with the nouns. But USTR is still blocking that. And within the next month, they will put out a national security strategy, an Indo-Pacific strategy, and we'll see. It's, I'd say, 50-50 whether there's some real substance there. The, the Kishida government will put a brave face on it publicly and say, we look forward to cooperating. But privately, I think, be frustrated if there isn't some real meat in, in the strategy. All nouns and no verbs. Sounds like the way I speak French, but anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. So let's go to the questions around defense and security. So the Kishida government is going to revise the national security strategy this year. What do you think the U.S. hopes to see from this new strategy that's coming out? The fact that Japan is doing its second national security strategy is a really important thing. Abe did the first one in 2013. And it was very good. It was very, I've worked on a number of these national security strategies in the White House, at the Pentagon, and their shelf life is not that long, to be honest. Abe's came out in 2013. It was premised on a, what I would call multilateral international strategy for competing with China, but also managing economic relations with China. And it's proven very durable. And so the big parts of that strategy, Kishida doesn't need to change. The success of Abe's strategy in terms of external balancing, which is to say aligning more closely with the U.S., with Australia and India, with, with, with Europe, Britain in particular, that success has not been fully matched by success at internal balancing, increasing Japan's own capabilities to maintain a balance of power. The defense budgets increased. Abe and Suga, despite COVID, have squeezed a little bit more growth out because of women's empowerment and deregulation in the stock market and in the tourism sector, for example, and energy. That internal source of power, that's a big challenge as China continues to challenge 
clarifying defense spending would be good. In the election last year, uh, one candidate and the LDP ultimately said that Japan should spend 2% of GDP, not 1% on defense. Quantity behind defense spending, quality of that investment. What will Japan do on standoff strike or air-to-surface strike capabilities? A big question. How will Japan keep up in challenges to new domains like space and cyber? Those are some of the areas where Japan's ability to deter China and maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific are, are being questioned. And I think those are the areas where the administration in Washington would like to see more progress. The U.S. is coming out with its national security strategy and Indo-Pacific strategy. Japan is coming out with, it, with its. I hope they're consulting closely so that they align well, because the whole world will be watching that. I think they are. You mentioned a little bit about the missile developments by China. So China and North Korea has been rapidly advancing their capabilities, including hypersonics. And North Korea has been testing recently in terms of missile defense capabilities. Do you think U.S. and Japan have been effectively addressing these developments? Now there's a discussion in the Kishida government about Japan possessing enemy strike capabilities. Do you think U.S. is ready for that and welcomes such decisions? It's interesting. Ten years ago, there would have been a huge debate and a lot of voices expressing concern or even opposition to Japan developing strike capability. Because throughout the Cold War and even in the early post-Cold War period, we had a division of roles and missions where, as they put it in the 80s, Japan was the shield. So missile defense, Aegis uh, and so forth. And the U.S. was the spear. We had the ability to go in and hit the Soviets hard or whoever threatened Japan. That division of roles and missions and capabilities has slowly changed. Japan, you know, began getting better expeditionary capability, a kind of Marine Corps to land forces, for example, and, and now is looking at, at uh, standoff strike. I think now the U.S. does welcome it on a bipartisan basis, will support. And U.S. industry, of course, is very happy to supply Japan with those weapons if Tokyo decides to buy them or develop them. I think, though, personally... I don't think this is where the administration is yet, but personally, I, I think, and when you were at CSIS, Yuka, we put out reports on this, I think the command and control relationships are not keeping up with these new capabilities Japan's developing and new challenges. We still have command and control relationships, meaning the commanders who take charge in a crisis. It's still basically what it was you know, 30, 40 years ago. And in some ways it's even weaker. And if Japan is going to develop the ability to have a spear, to reach out and strike an enemy, we have to have a very close-knit, very tight, really joint command and control relationship. The only place we have that in Asia, we have it with NATO. The only place we have it in Asia is with the Korean alliance, where we have joint and combined command, where Korean and American troops command each other, and where we have a joint plan. I think that's really going to be essential for the US and Japan going forward, so that we trust Japan, so that we're developing our plans. And among other things, when you have a joint command like that, where you're you're sitting side by side, making your plans and managing the battlefield, what it does is it forces countries to buy the right stuff and to have military exercises and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, change what they're buying. It, it, it It's how NATO and the U.S.-Korea alliance work, and to some extent, U.S.-Australia. But with Japan, there's still a lot of what I would call parallel play. We kind of let each other know what we're buying and deploying, but it's not a joint effort the way it needs to be. And jointness is deterrence. Jointness is capability. And there's too many redundancies, too much uncertainty about what each side would do. I don't think either government is moving to this yet. But when you talk to experts about how the US-Japan alliance would work in a crisis, that's the big missing piece is the command and control relationship. And I think it's going to be an agenda for the coming years. 
Right. I think that also comes to my next question. Since, you know, we're based in London and we've been hearing from the UK security community about the impact of the Ukraine crisis, um, since you mentioned about the, the cooperation between the crisis and uh, even the countries that have started to form its Indo-Pacific strategies are now taking much of their time and debate uh, to discuss the security in, in Europe. We were hoping to hear how you think this Ukraine crisis would impact the security environment um, in Asia. There's a lot of discussions around the potential double front contingency in Ukraine and Taiwan Straits, but what do you think about this? It's obviously vexing for the Biden administration, because if they don't do enough to deter Vladimir Putin and he invades Ukraine, then Asian allies will question American credibility. But if they surge forces and budget and attention to Ukraine, then Asian allies will question American commitment. So it's really a delicate and difficult balancing act. It helps that the administration largely knows what its strategy is. There's probably less debate about Asia strategy in this administration than there has been in many, many decades. So that will help because if you know what you're doing and most of the, the president and the cabinet's focused on another part of the world, at least the people in charge of Asia know what their plan is and can implement it. That helps. It also helps that some key European allies, although they would understandably be more focused on Ukraine, are increasingly aligned, especially the UK, with the US on Indo-Pacific strategy. But I have a piece actually this week in Foreign Policy with Evan Medeiros, who was Obama's senior age advisor, arguing that precisely because of Ukraine, the administration needs some big plays in Asia right now. Something more concrete on economics, funding increases in Congress, so that both the NATO commander and the Indo-Pacific commander get what they need. It's not a time to sort of hit pause in Asia and then shift to, to the U Ukraine crisis. Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore used to complain American leaders think that they can, you know, treat their strategy like a video. If, you know, in Asia, they can hit pause and then they can go and play the European video game and then come back and hit play again. But Asia moves on. And who's moving on right now? And I don't think China will be tempted to attack Taiwan because of Ukraine. I think, I think Xi Jinping's attitude is going to be, how can we weaken American focus, resolve alliance, but not start a war? The more dangerous player is North Korea, which, of course, is ramping up its missile tests and has more of a history of exploiting crises in Europe or the Middle East to, to, to do provocation. So that's who I think is going to test us. We're just going to have to be disciplined. United States is a two-ocean global power, and we're going to have to be disciplined. Any discussion of security, as I think you've been suggesting, Mike, has to include uh, economic security as well. And it's been interesting to watch how Japan and the US have been trying to get a bit closer on in terms of economic security. My eye was caught by the two plus two economic meetings that uh, that were announced at the Kishida Biden summit in, in January. What's your view of how closely aligned the two are in terms of economic security, actually? The two plus two on the U.S. side will be led by the Secretary of Commerce and Secretary of State, not the U.S. Trade Representative. Back to my earlier point about who's who's battling for control of economic policy. But I think it's a good thing because the Secretary of Commerce, Raimundo, Secretary of State, Blinken, can use that two plus two to push forward their agenda back in the U.S. And so I think they do align well with their Japanese counterparts and will use this two plus two to add more clarity to their Indo-Pacific economic framework. I also think it's an important forum because Japan is preparing in the diet an economic security legislative package, and nobody's quite sure what's going to go in it. It's a kind of chanko nabe, 
you know, the sumo wrestler stew where they throw everything in that'll help them get fat. So it's got export controls, it's got investment screening, it's got reshoring of semiconductors. It looks a lot like the legislation that's meandering through Congress right now on the same. So that's a good vehicle for the two governments to talk about how they'll use the legislation. And very importantly, make sure that it doesn't put up barriers between the U.S. and Japan, which, you know, rent seeking could easily happen in both Congress and the Diet. And so I think it's a very good thing they've started this forum. Japan is in such a different place, Robert, than when we were in in Asia. When my first job in government was in USTR, actually, I worked on the Japan desk after I came back for a little while in the era of Super 301 and, and, and Japan bashing. And uh, it was great, great sport. I was 24 or something. I was put in charge of negotiations over the garbage disposal market. And I literally wrote a letter. I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote a letter for the U.S. trade rep, Clayton Yarder, to his Japanese counterpart, to the Japanese foreign minister, saying, if you don't open the garbage disposal market, it could affect the U.S.-Japan security alliance. I mean, what did I know? And I got a note back saying, great work. And they never showed it to the State Department, and off it went. And it went to uh, the deputy director of economic affairs, Ken Sasai, head of Kokomon Ken, JIIA, and ambassador. And he later told me, actually, when he was ambassador, that I said, whatever happened to you? He said, oh, I just threw it away. And I said, thank you. So those were crazy days. When Abe took over, about 16, 18% of Japan's trade was covered by trade agreements. When he left, the number was somewhere around 85%. So Japan has just stepped up on tradecraft. That's where we're lucky Japan's filling the vacuum left by the US and where we're not as aligned as we could be. But on the economic security, meaning decoupling export controls, I think the governments are pretty well aligned, as well aligned as anyone. You know, Australia would be in the mix as well. But trade, economic rulemaking, tradecraft, not really on the same page. Japan's government has a basic understanding that Japanese companies will invest in China and need protections. The Biden administration hasn't reached that conclusion. It's not clear if they want U.S. companies investing. And yet, investment hasn't declined. You know, technology exports have, but investment hasn't. So, you know, Japan just has a more comprehensive and, in my view, realistic and balanced view of economic security. The U.S. on bits and pieces is closely aligned, but has not, you know, reached the comprehensive strategic approach Japan has. Interesting, perhaps, with with regard to the two plus two economic meetings, that Japan's new economic security minister won't, won't be on the on the team. I think we're still trying to understand what his job is. Part of his job is getting this legislation through. He is very well thought of, Mr. Kobayashi, but he has no bureaucracy under him. It's not clear exactly what his role will be. For now, it's getting this legislation through and championing the overall strategy. Personally, I would like to see him spend a lot of time in Washington because he's very articulate and strategic, uh, pushing for us to get our act together in Washington. But I suspect most of his political energy is going to be back in the diet. Perhaps also spend some time in London when the UK is starting to think about its own economic security as well. Exactly. Exactly. But look, maybe, look, when this legislation passes in Japan, which it will, that's going to be a pretty good war chest or toolkit for the Japanese government on things like reshoring and investment screening. And there's some speculation that Kobayashi will then start traveling to Washington and London and, and Ottawa and Paris and so forth and building up more of a coalition. I think it'd be a good use of his talents. And maybe the time to do it is after the legislation when there's something to talk about. And when hopefully by next spring, the U.S. will have passed its legislation and there will be some momentum. Right now, the export controls and investment screening in Japan and in the U.S. and I think in the U.K., is a lot like the administrative guidance of, of Miti in the 1980s, you know, Gyose Shido, when people would call on the phone and say, you know, Chairman so-and-so, you might not want to export that widget to China. That's basically, it's very ad hoc right now. 
and there needs to be a legislative and legal framework that the countries can plug into. We spoke a lot about the U.S.-Japan bilateral relations, and I had some final questions around the role of bilaterals and multilaterals that are forming in Asia. Which kind of bilaterals and multilateral frameworks, um, notably the Quad, that the U.S. and Japan should prioritize to tackle some of the security and economic challenges that we mentioned? And another question to follow up was,、um, where do you think U.K. and Europe fits in these spaghetti bowl of cooperation frameworks? Institutional architecture of Asia has, at one level, A very broad and very inclusive set of arrangements, like APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, which the U.S. will host next, which is basically the the, the major economies and some small economies, including China,、uh, RCEP and CPTPP and these other trade agreements. And then it has very narrow bilateral security alliances: the U.S. alliance with Japan, Korea, Australia, and so forth. Which are all about common values, common interests, and defense cooperation. So very, very different. In the middle is a huge open space. It's not going to be filled by a collective security arrangement, where the U.S. creates a NATO in Asia. It's too difficult for a country like Japan or Korea to sign on to a security collective security arrangement against a country that is, is its major trading partner. It's very different from when NATO was set up vis-a-vis the Soviets.、Uh, that could happen someday. Chinese could make that reality if they use war. So I wouldn't say never, but it's extremely difficult now. So instead, in that middle space, you have these trilateral and quadrilateral groupings around security, which are, you know, the most significant is U.S., Japan, Australia, which、uh, I was involved in starting in 2001 in the Bush administration. And the Quad gets more attention because it's got India and it's bigger, but but and it's important、uh, and has a lot of growth potential in my view. But the TSD, the trilateral security dialogue, U.S., Japan, Australia, that's the one that the most intimate. And significant, and then there are trilaterals that are underperforming that are critical, like U.S., Japan, Korea, which are essential for contingencies and diplomacy on the Korean Peninsula, but also shaping China's、uh, strategic choices. And then you have these oddball trilats and quadrilats. You know, U.S., China, Russia. I've been in that one; it's not fun. U.S.,、uh, Japan, India. I start. I started that one, and that is fun. U.S., Israel, Australia. I mean, they're all U.S., Korea, Australia is a big thing now. So countries are. Looking for it's kind of like in the U.S. Congress what people call caucuses, you know, not political parties but caucuses, groups that care about you know, women's rights or groups that care about the environment, could be you know in the U.S. Congress bipartisan. We have these kind of caucuses: the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, you know, and they're not heavily institutionalized, but they allow focused、uh, attention on issues, and and that very fluid kind of arrangement is going to continue, but. In contrast to ten years ago, there's a much stronger flavor of of security cooperation among like-minded states. That's and I think the Koreans after the election in March, when a new government comes in in May, I think you're going to see them doing more with、um, the Quad,、uh, not joining but doing more. I think you may even see them doing more with AUKUS, together with Japan, with the U.S., Australia, U.K. China is pushing countries to want more comfort from like-minded powers. And that feature of this minilateralism is going to continue. And Japan's at the center of almost all of them, and it's、uh, and is trusted as a partner, and that's part of the reason why. So I think we are now at the time when we have to ask our two Japan memo questions, which、uh, we asked all all of our guests. And I get the privilege of asking the first one: whether you have any book recommendations for our listeners who wish to understand Japan a bit more. And you are entirely allowed to recommend your own books if if you so wish. So. Over to you, Mike. 
I won't recommend all my books because they they start to bore me, but I do have a new book coming out in March from Columbia University Press called Line of Advantage, Japan's Grand Strategy in the Era of Abe Shinzo. And it's a book that looks at all the dimensions of Japan's new grand strategy, the era of Yoshida Shigeru, an economics first, risk averse foreign policy is over. And Abe's grand strategy now is is not going to be called Abe's grand strategy necessarily, but it's 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 the framework that's the mainstream framework. And the book talks about the critical years from 2013 to 2018, 19, when Abe put all the key pillars in place, the free and open Indo-Pacific, collective security defense, and the new guidelines of the US and so forth. But it also goes back to earlier periods in history, um, all the way back to Nihon Koki and the earliest recorded chronicles of Japan's relations with China to try to put it in a larger historical context. In preparing for that book and doing uh, reading, I found a number of wonderful histories. Among contemporary historians, the one who I think captures Japan's strategic history the best is S.C.M. Payne, who's at the Naval War College. And she's written, written a series of books on the, on the Russo-Japanese War, the Sino-Japanese War, both 1894 and the 1937 war. And it's a geopolitical history of Japan in Northeast Asia. She's not a Japan expert who necessarily dives into the archives in Japanese, but she understands naval power and military history and grand strategy and they're short, wonderful reads. So anything by SCM Payne about Japan's wars in the in the in the turn of the century is 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 well worth it. And I'm, you know, speaking in terms of geopolitical reading. There are many, many good books on the sushi industry in Japan and baseball, but for the listeners, for a geopolitical podcast, I would point to those. Thank you for your recommendations, and we certainly look forward to reading your book. So the second Japan Memo question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Japan is trusted. It's surprising, but particularly among an older generation of American and European foreign policy thinkers, um, including, frankly, in the Biden administration, there are people whose experiences were shaped by the trade wars with Japan in the 1980s and early 1990s, or by the so-called lost decade or lost decades after Japan's economy hit the wall, you know, the 90s and 2000s. And they tend, therefore, to either dismiss Japan's agency the ability of Japan to actually shape its environment and are surprised, including senior people in this administration who are surprised when I point out that things like the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is a Japanese, is Abe's idea. So, so a mistake you often get among foreign policy experts is, is, is the idea Japan has so much intellectual or thought leadership on strategy. In Australia, the Lowe Institute called Japan the thought leader of Asia, uh, which is right in many respects. Um, a lot of the key elements of the Biden administration strategy came from Japan, but not very many senior officials fully realize that. And then the other thing people still get wrong is this idea that Japan is isolated in Asia. And, you know, senior cabinet members in the Obama administration I briefed were stunned, stunned when I told them that in Southeast Asia, Japan is by far the most trusted country. I mean, Gallup had a poll one year where Japan had an average 95% favorability rating across Southeast Asia. Korea, it's rougher. China, it's very rough because it's part of China's propaganda campaign. But in South and Southeast Asia, and I think in Europe and North America as well, uh, Japan is extremely trusted. Both those things are assets for the U.S., for Britain, for like-minded states, that Japan has thought leadership, has ideas, well-honed and resourced, and Japan has real soft power and respect in Asia. The, the, The weak point, of course, is Korea. And that's the homework assignment for Seoul, Tokyo, and frankly, Washington. But otherwise, Japan does extremely well, and people often don't appreciate that. 
I think it was quite striking that the latest Knight Armitage report that highlighted that Japan was actually an innovative thinker that would probably be surprising uh, from the reports uh, decades ago. Thank you, Dr. Green, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Tier program and the WIWS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active in sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at Robert Allen Ward and at Yuka Koshino. Thanks again, and see you next time.